So welcome to episode four of the new Give Us Time podcast. Joining us today alongside Scotty and Rupert is our new Give Us Time ambassador and former commanding officer of the 5th Battalion, the Royal Regiment of Scotland, David Richmond. Uh, David, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, reading your bio, um, you've led a remarkable life so far I mean, and you've been part of some amazing projects that have helped our military uh, community. Um, before Scotty will go and jump in and ask whether you've been scuba diving in Hawaii or anywhere else, I thought we um, should first start with um, how you started your military career. Well, I, I yeah, well, it's really nice to, to be on the call, so thank you very much for asking me. I, I, I joined the Army in 1986 and went to Sandhurst in that year, in January, uh, and it was just something I had always wanted to do. And if... Um, if somebody really put, pressed me at the, the age of 17 or whenever it was, I did my commissions board and said, really, why? well, they did press me why I wanted to join. And I said, it's something I'd always wanted to do. There's nothing, I didn't come from a military family. You know, my, my parents weren't um, from military families. You know, my grandparents had both served in the Second World War as, as, uh, as so many of, of that generation did. But it was just something I'd always wanted to do, something I'd always aspired to. Um, and hadn't really set my mind on anything else at all. So it was it was for me a bit of a, a bit of a dream come true when I when I got my place at Sandhurst and joined in in January '86. And, and frankly, even though bits of Sandhurst are pretty unpleasant, I absolutely loved it. Um, and um, and I could tell you when I fell out the far end of my military career, 26 years later, that I I even on reflection, you know, I loved every minute of it. I mean, there might be one or two bits I might change. But um, so on the whole, it was, a, it was a really great experience and one I'm really glad I did. How old were you when you first went and joined? What was it like, you know, um, from a young age joining Sandhurst? Well, I was pretty much your typical um, uh, idiot 19-year-old subaltern, to be honest. So I, I went... <laughs> I didn't <laughs> and some may say, Scotty, I'll say it before you do. I might have been that sort of typical idiot, forty-two-year-old CEO as well. But there we go. Yes, um, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> I, I went through Sandhurst with bundles of enthusiasm and and, and exuberance and, lo and loved it. And then I, I remember arriving in the battalion. I went to the Royal Highland Fusiliers, um, who were in West Berlin at the time, and um, I had. More enthusiasm was probably good for me, um, which was tempered frequently by platoon sergeants and corporals and various others. Um, and um, I just took it for, for for all it had by way of the experience. I loved being with soldiers. I loved doing the, I loved the whole thing actually. And I, I look back really, really fondly on my on my um, my time, particularly my early years. And one of the things I really was was grateful for was that. You know, I was your, your 19 or 20 year old subaltern with, I didn't bother with that university business because it, uni wasn't really for me, to be honest. I, I wanted to get on and do things. Um, and I was allowed to screw things up. Yeah. And and I was allowed to screw things up without the threat as you'll never be, uh, you'll never go anywhere, young man, this kind of stuff. You could almost see the sort of faint rolling of eyes of sergeant majors and company commanders uh, and the metaphorical smack <laughs> on the back of the head. And then you you sort of, made sure you didn't do it again. And I, and I tried when I was a CO, and actually as a company commander, but it's particularly a CO to, to have the same sort of approach that you know, young young people, be, be they young soldiers or young officers, you, you, you need to have that sort of time and space in your career to, to screw things up royally and learn from them. <laughs> because actually that's, as long as nobody's being done any harm by it, you know, there's a, there's a natural sort of limit to that clearly. But um, if you're cocking out with all the best of motivations, um, then, then you're learning lots at the same time. And I'm really grateful that the people around me when I was at that stage of my career gave me that space to do it. And I think actually, for me, really, really set some solid foundations for going forward and actually my own sort of approach to life from then on. And I think that was just so important. Oh, fantastic. So um, when you went and left Sandhurst then, where were you first posted to? Well, I went to West Berlin. Um, which was brilliant. It was quite an, a quite extraordinary place. You know, we, we were still in the days of border walls and German and Soviet guards and and patrols into each other's sectors and British military trains and all, all this kind of stuff was still going on. The um, so it was a, it was a, I, it was an extraordinary time because I think now if you were to say to young 
youngsters these days. You know, just imagine you know, in the middle of Europe, there's a city which is surrounded by a wall. And not only is the wall go around the outside of it, but it goes right through the middle of it too. Um, and it's mined and there's guard dogs and people get shot for trying to cross it from one side to the other. But nobody particularly wants to cross it going from going in the other direction. <laughs> um, all those kind of things. They'd look at you as if you were mad. But that was that was what it was. Um, yeah. But it was a great place to to um, to experience. And I'm really glad I did. And weirdly, you know, a few years ago, I went back to Berlin and stayed with my wife at a hotel, which which when I was there as a subaltern would have been right in the middle of the death zone, the kill zone, the border area near Checkpoint Charlie. Um, you know, it was so fundamentally changed. It was extraordinary um, and quite a weird experience. But you know, West Berlin, what a place. And socially, what an extraordinary place. Um, I won't go into the gory details, but, but just believe <laughs> it. it <laughs> Already starting off better than Scotty, then you know. I mean, there was no catalyst on the team, Scotty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you, you should have been in West Berlin. In fact, maybe it was a good job you weren't. <laughs> no. did, West, did West Berlin exist when you joined Scotty? Are you too young? Oh, for nah, too young for that. I was in '95, or the start, end of '94, I joined, and then I went to Gutterslow then. And when did I go there? Bosnia, '97. '97, I went to Germany. Yeah, um, the land of milk and honey, then, as I used to call it, with the the, the fuel coupons and the tax back and everything else. But yeah. I was going to ask you when you were there in Berlin, at that stage of the eighties, the IRA still had a lot of presence, and mm. they were trying to attack a lot over in um, Germany. Was that just a threat as much as it would be nowadays, or was it still where your main focus was? Garden the areas you were east west as such, or was it still quite a big? Um... Yeah, well, I, I think the IRA was always a factor. I, I, I think you were probably more secure in Berlin than you were anywhere else. But you were, you know, there was still a factor for sure. I mean, I think we were we were very focused on the east east west piece rather than the IRA bit. I think, um, and to illustrate, I mean, some of the extraordinary. Um, aspects of it, you know, the, I was in Montgomery Barracks in Berlin, which the, the wall, part of the wall to to the barracks was actually the wall to East Germany. <laughs> Halfway along the MT sheds, yeah. they stopped being um, sort of 1980s decorated and started looking like they hadn't been touched since 1945. And that's <laughs> they hadn't been touched since 1945. They were actually in East Germany. So the, the wall of the barracks at, at a certain point was actually inside the east so um it wasn't unusual for the um to see there was a gate and the gate would open and through would come the soviet border guards with their guard dogs and they never wandered around in our barracks but but on their side of the of what was the actual border so you, uh, and we hadn't thought to actually put a fence up between, between <laughs> And you just think it's just extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, you know, and and the duties you did as a subby, you know, you'd be the officer on the British military train with a platoon of your guys. Who every time the train stopped, it stopped in was it Magdeburg or somewhere it stopped? Yeah, Magdeburg. Yeah. Magdeburg. Um, then the chains would they chain the doors shut to stop people getting on. Um, the train would be surrounded by Soviet guards, armed guards in their great coats and helmets, and um, and then you'd get off the train with the train warrant officer who had a briefcase and you'd be in num full number two dress, service dress. Um, and um, you'd march down the platform, conduct a little ceremony in the platform with the Soviet officer and his his warrant officer, I guess. And then you disappear into an office where you then present the passports and the papers for everybody traveling through Soviet East Germany. Um, and it, at wow. a whim, they could just hold you there for hours or days. Um, and the, you normally had the train warrant officer would keep a few goodies up his sleeve so that if there was a risk this might happen, then there'd be a bottle of something produced or a, or a certain type of magazine would be produced and handed over. Um, and all, the, yeah. all these sort of things smoothed, smoothed away. And then you'd have the whole, <laughs> the whole thing would be done in reverse. You get back on the train, the chains would be taken off, the train would pull away, and that was you. Um, well, there was just an actual train just for British soldiers. Yeah, and families and dependents and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and Rupert, do you remember the barracks that David was on about? And you remember? Yeah. Were you there? I was you there. Yeah. yourself somewhere? 
No, we were in uh, Montgomery T. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did the train guard and everything else. It really yeah. was a sort of tier three city, wasn't it? It was uh, extraordinary. So you'd fly the, the wall and you could see, um, I'm sure you did this, David, you could see over the wall watching uh, the East German army practicing its live firing going yeah. down the ranges and their tanks live firing. Yeah, you could hear it just, yeah. just over the wall, literally over, just the wall. over the wall. And then you get shadowed. Uh, one of their choppers would come up and shadow you as you yeah. went around the wall. The only difference was that um, they had missiles on their helicopters and we were in little gazelles with nothing, um, <laughs> which uh, was quite an interesting experience. Yeah, yeah, no, I had my stag party in East Berlin uh, in Mesquite and then uh, went back to the West. Yeah, it was it was weird. Well, like, you, you look at this stuff and here we were with a barracks, which was actually partially in East Berlin already with a gate through which they could come anytime they wanted. So any any time after sort of bedtime on any night and they could have they could have had us all at a stroke. <laughs> well, we, we were on two hours notice to move for yeah. a couple of years, weren't we? Yeah. And I, I always used to Which even was a bit of a long that. timeline considering yeah. how close that yeah. was. the alert platoon on the was was at thirty minutes notice to move for permanently there was a platoon on a, a, a across British military garrison. Yeah. And we think so at thirty minutes notice to move we have a platoon. <laughs> um and 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 the other one that always made me chuckle was the, the was the tank squadron. There was always an independent or a tank squadron in Berlin, <laughs> and it had sixteen tanks or something instead of twelve, because it was Berlin. And yeah, well, that'll really give the Soviets cause for thought. That <laughs> 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 we've, got our, we've got our alert platoon and sixteen tanks. Just you wait. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we had a battery of guns too. Battery guns, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was a great place, and, and it, was, it was it yeah. was so much. It was there was a lot of learning done there actually, um, in lots of ways. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I made yeah. a few mistakes. Ladies and gentlemen, mistakes. this world we yeah. am able to download from nine o'clock at night. David Richardson will tell you more in depth. Of Germany. Oh, amazing. <laughs> So, um, so David, moving forward from um, Berlin, um, I'm assuming, but I didn't know, um, I'm assuming you were in Northern Ireland as well. Um, am I right into saying that? Because I know um, yeah. in previous podcasts, Scotty and Rupert have discussed um, wh um, what they got up to. What was um, Northern Ireland like for you? Um, I, I suspect not different, particularly different from lots of guys. You know, I, my first deployment was... Crikey, 1988, um, and we, we went to Fermanagh and Tyrone, um, which was, which actually, to be honest, was, was a relatively quiet tour. Um, the we did actually the, the other, only other thing that was notable about that tour was it was relatively quiet, and it was the last of the four month tours. Um, we were the, so we used you used to deploy to Northern Ireland for four months at a time, and so you'd have three battalions in any one place in a year, and we were the last of the four months. And we also, the other thing notable about it actually was we handed over to the Royal Irish or the, the, the Irish Rangers as it was, who were about to do their first deployment. Um, and they, they were, they got a double whammy. It was their first deployment to Ireland and they got six months as well. Um, so, so we had a relatively quiet, um, relatively quiet time there. Mm. But it was, again, it was, it was a very much a rural environment. We did a sort of combination of, in the company of long patrols, which would be three or four days, short patrols, which are less than 24 hours, um, guards and duties. And when you're on guards and duties, you had your R&R, your rest and recuperation sessions as well. And that's what we did for, for four months. Um, and then my other tours were uh, Belfast, I did a number of. And um, in fact, oh, I was a company, company commander. We did the rule of into, into Besbrook on a sort of frequent six to eight week period continually and the marching season and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it was, they were interesting times. And that, that was your operational experience in those days. That's, that's what you did. That's where and you I, cut your teeth, I, really. Sorry, Scotty. That's where, that's where you learned to cut your teeth, really. That was, um, yeah. And, and I, I did think, you know, when, when we went to, when I was CEO in Musakala, you know, in 2008, that a lot of the things we we learned in Northern Ireland and some of the kit we used, cameras especially, 
would have been so useful in, in Afghanistan. And, and you could see actually that because it had been such a long time since we properly deployed um, into Northern Ireland, there was a cohort up, probably up to you know, roughly up to corporal level who'd never actually served in Ireland. And therefore didn't have that. There are lots of other things, but what in, in that's a small team environment. Sometimes they didn't necessarily quite work on the same principles and use the same experiences you you, you built up doing your know, several deployments to rurally or, or urban in 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 Northern Ireland. Um, and it's easy, rather brought home to me how quickly the military forgets things, yeah. um, and uh, and normally regrets it for all of that. Uh, but um, but the interesting times, you know, I, I remember be, just being struck by, in order to, for the police, two policemen to serve a warrant on somebody in the new lodge, they it took 20 soldiers to go with them in, in, in four or five teams, plus a helicopter. So all they were going to do was chap a door and hand somebody a bit of paper. Um, but, but without Crazy. that, it just couldn't have happened. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there was some, that it would be, entirely wrong to to paint everybody in those sort of those sort of estates in the same brush but um there are some very good people in there and there's some particularly evil nasty buggers as well um and uh you, you needed to develop quite quickly a sense for who was where at any one time yeah okay yeah i think we that is a recurring i think point mentioned by both rupert and scotty as well um from their time there that, that really struck me as well when uh rupert was Taylor, Rupert and Scotty were telling me, you know, the amount of, you know, uh, um, military personnel needed to go along just with a police car. I just had no idea that oh. it was um, the the scale of it all. So, you know, moving on from Northern Ireland to a completely different area, and you mentioned it there, um, Iraq and Afghanistan, that must have been a completely, it's a completely different layout. You know, you're no longer in Berlin or Belfast, you're in a desert in the middle of nowhere really what was that like yeah, yeah inter interesting times you know I, I did i was lucky enough to go and op, op granby um, which was the first gulf war in 91 but that was a i mean what i saw there was and it will always stay with me it was the it was the u.s armed forces at scale and it was crikey it was it was quite awesome to behold I mean, just how they operate. And I remember thinking the night before um, went through the berm, you thinking, thank goodness I'm on this side looking that way, not on that side looking this way. Um, <laughs> because um, I want them on my side. Uh, quite extraordinary. And actually just to see that the British Army, Navy and Air Force really swinging into action in 1991 was, was, was really impressive. But it was pretty conventional. We, we did what we were going to do by way of um, of uh, kicking the Iraqis out of Kuwait, stopped, and then that was it. You know, we, we then extracted and flew home. Um, and, um, and arguably that let, set the conditions in some places for what happened in all the years later in, was it 2003, I think. Um, but, um, you yeah, the second, you yeah, the, the Afghanistan and Iraq in the sort of 2000s were very different, very challenging places. Um, uh, they were they were proper insurgencies, uh, and um, and I remember actually interestingly if I sort of jumped to the sort of when I was a CEO in in Masakala, writing my sort of weekly, kind of if it was a weekly or a monthly wrap up for the brigade commander, and saying it, um, it might have been a week actually, and saying it had been actually been quite a quiet week, and then when I look back I thought blimey here we are saying it's quite a quiet week, and we'd been rocketed every night we'd had. You know, X number of contacts during the week. We'd had IEDs and did it, and we thought that was quite a quiet week. Um, <laughs> and you just so you sort of there was just orders of magnitude different um, from from this a uh, conventional forces thing in the nineties. I was just going to say, David. You know, you're chatting about the scale of the US military. Um, what was it compared to, obviously, us lonely little Brits? What sort of scale was it about? 10 to 1 oh. or was it more? I think they had something like did they not I mean I may be way off the mark here it, I think they had something like half a million people deployed I mean it was just it was just extraordinary and yeah. you see as you flew into um or, or drove around some of the port cities as you were getting your sort of insertion um 
just be ranks and ranks and ranks of um, Humvees. And I thought, oh, I'm thinking to myself, bloody hell, do these guys have one each? There are thousands of them. I mean, thousands upon thousands. But then you saw the scale at which they operated. And, and, and I know we like to, to sort of take the mickey out of our American allies. Um, but I think genuinely it's, it's more mickey taken than anything else. Because what is evident is you can't operate on that scale if you're stupid. When you're operating that scale, you've got to be good at what you do. Now, you, you might not get everything right along the way, but then you don't get everything right along the way operating at our scale either. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was just I remember being gobsmacked by the scale at which they operated. It just just way beyond anything in our imagination. I mean, they deployed more, I think, into into Iraq in 1990-91 than, than if you added the Army, Navy and the Air Force in the UK altogether. Crazy. Um, yeah, interesting times and lots to lots to take in, um, lots to learn. Now, it's uh, it's an interesting. I had the privilege of working with the Americans in Saintcom for a bit, and um, I remember getting a phone call from the UK saying, "Hey, we found another Chinook, and it's going to go in." And we everyone was terribly excited, yeah. and they wanted me to tell the Americans. And we uh, at the time were doing a check of what was out in. Afghan, Iraq and um, Horn of Africa uh, and we were trying to work out where 10 helicopters were because they were either being stripped down and sent back or they were they were offline for some reason or another uh, and I remember saying to uh, the MOD um, well I don't think they're going to be that excited really you know because one helicopter is noise literally yeah, yeah. Um, and they do they're, they're just extraordinary in what they can bring to bear yeah. Lots and lots of kit and people that can use it properly. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I remember during a, I mean, off, off the subject slightly, is during a staff college trip, I mean, when you're at staff college, you, you're lucky you go and get yourself across the States and you go to Eastern Europe as well. But the States, and we ended up part of that seeing the US Navy on, on, on the Harry S. Truman, which is a, one of their 100,000 yeah. ton aircraft carriers. Which is just awesome to behold, is you stand on the flight deck, which is something like six acres big. Um, and the pilot says, you might look big when you're standing down here, but it doesn't look very big when you're approaching at night at 250 knots. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, fair enough. But you just the scale and the, they're able to launch an aircraft every minute and receive one every 30 seconds, or it's the other way around, there's one, one or the other. And you, you can't do this if you don't know what you're doing. I mean, to, to operate this, these things and the scale they do is just quite incredible. Um, and um, you know, all these experiences sort of, sort of build up uh, over time. And, and then you sort of find yourself um, sitting in, in um, somewhere like Musakala, where, where you know, you, you've got these, the highest tech supporters have ever been, really fighting pretty well organized, determined, brave, men in flip-flops, dish-dashes, carrying Kalashnikovs um, and doing it really, really effectively. Um, and it's just, it just such a massive mind, mindset shift and difference of approach. Um, and I think that that bit around, you, know, you, you so I, I link back to the sort of Northern Ireland experience where, where so much of it is around um, ensuring you bring people with you. You know, you're not fighting the entire Northern Ireland population. Actually, you are probably you are there to protect the Northern Ireland population. And just remembering that when you were doing going about your work in in Helmand Province, that that what we needed then was far more friends than enemies. And if we didn't get this right, we'd end up with far more enemies than friends. And and largely the the, the gift for that was that was in our gift and some of the decisions we we could have made. Um, I mean, that was that was where I, I would connect experience as a young officer in Northern Ireland in the 80s with and 90s with experience as a CO in Musik in Musakara in Helmand Province in the 2000s. Yeah. It's a, it, you know, you, there might be some people who are trying to kill you, but they're not all trying to kill you. And that's the vast majority of people in there just want to get on with their life. Um, and, and how can you how can you help that as opposed to hinder it? How can you make sure that, that you're, you're making more friends, not making more enemies? And that's really hard. Yeah, I mean, so growing up for me um, as a kid, you know, um, obviously when Iraq and Afghanistan started, for me, that was, you know, to me, that was just the biggest thing going on. I remember, as a, you know, 
going to secondary school and all that every single night, you know, would see the the 10 o'clock news that my dad's watching and obviously Hellman Province and, you know, uh, Camp Bastion, all these names repeated again and again. Um, what was it like just, you know, in your kind of experience? And you know, I know you briefly touched upon it, but, you know, Hellman Province and, and all that, I mean, what was that experience like for you? Um, it was it was probably the most demanding professional experience of my career um, for lot for lots of reasons. I mean, it, it was a demanding in terms of the professional complexity of it. It was demanding in terms of you know, the environment. You know, if you didn't look after yourself and your kit, you uh, or it would fall apart. And and when you fall apart. Um, somewhere like Helmand, um, or your kit falls apart, the replacement isn't nearby. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it, it just brought added, you know, added acuity to all, all of that. Um, I, I was continually amazed and in awe of the sort of the day-to-day -day bravery of, of young men and women, actually. You, you, you're asking guys predominantly in their early 20s to walk out the gate every single day in the almost or, or, with the almost complete certainty that within an hour they're going to be in some form of absolute ding dong um and yet they go out every day you know there's <laughs> that that you know, that kind of stuff is often overlooked you know, the, the guys who do who get medals you know i'm, I, I'm not suggesting for a minute they don't deserve them I mean, if you if you get a, a gallantry medal by god you deserve it because the bar is is quite ridiculously high but in in focusing in on the guys who got something pinned to the chest, let's not overlook the whole load of people who who had to sort of take a big deep breath every single day and step out the gate again. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, with with the sort of knowledge of what the threat was around them, and I think that that will will stay with me for forever. Actually, that that sort of day to day bravery and resilience and fortitude. Um, is something I think that you know you hear so often in your military career. Oh well, you know they're just not like there's no they're just not the same quality they used to be, are they? Well, what com complete pants? <laughs> these, these guys and girls prove that they are more than up to it, and I and I'm sure that there will be some today. Here we are, twelve years later from my time in Helmand, saying, "Well, the recruits today they're just not just not the same as our day." I say, "Well, just just give them a chance." because they are more than up to this. Um, and the quality of our leaders, you know, at junior level, your last corporals, corporals, sergeants, young platoon commanders, some really earning their spurs, leadership spurs every single day. Um, it just, to me, we, you know, in terms of a, of a culture and an ethos and, a, and, a, and an institution that is getting some stuff really absolutely right, well, there it is, because actually I, I hear in this a few times recently, you know, I, I completely buy. You know, a lot of people chuck rocks at the armed forces because they get some things wrong or it doesn't reflect society often is the sort of the real challenge. And I buy that the armed forces should, should reflect the society they come from. But I buy it up to a point because the society the armed forces come from aren't asked to go and stick bayonets in the Queen's enemies. And neither should they be. That's why you have armed forces. And it takes a, a, it takes a particular sort of person with a particular sort of organisation and culture and ethos and training and focus and determination to go and do that, full in the knowledge that it might be you who gets the bayonet stuck in them first. Yeah, there's, there's suddenly yeah, there's a, this unlimited liability. Yeah. Um, peace. Um, and therefore, yeah, I, I sort of, I do wince a bit when I hear, oh, well, we're not, we're not reflecting the society we come from. Well, in what way? Because, you know, the, I mean, I, I, I get it in certain, from certain perspectives. I, I think there's a line we need to draw. And having seen it at first hand in, in Helmand, you know, where, you know, when, when the bullets are real and the, and the IED threat is real um, and the threat of death or serious injury is real, people don't follow you out of curiosity anymore. You know, that thing we all sort of laugh at, we follow the platoon commander out of curiosity. Well, they do on exercise, um, <laughs> but, but they don't when it's real. Yeah. Um, 
And, and that's where it comes down to again, though, David. You mentioned it also about leadership, especially much as training, as much training prior and each patrol you learn from every sort of different one you go out on. Yeah. And it's having that trust and having that unity and bond where the guy who's going to be left of you and the guy who's going to be right of you. And yeah. what happens if yeah. one of those guys do get caught with a, a wee zippy thing, how you can deal with it. And well, then exactly. that situ yeah. situation changes. And I'm, I said it in one of the last podcasts. Mike Tyson said quite rightly, you know, all the training goes out the window when you get a punch in the mouth. Um, and it's the exact same. And, and we said to Rupert mentioned, you know, no plan uh, survives contact, first contact with anyway. Yeah. And that's where it comes down to your training, understanding, leadership. Put all that together, we have a bloody great force. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. I mean, yeah, Dave, you've been very modest as well. You yourself were going out, you know, going out that gate as well. Um, in and putting yourself in um in danger and um obviously i you know hate to obviously speak about it but you know do you want to talk through what happened in 2008 um because um even when was the moment where you went ah yeah yeah damn it i knew i should have, bit, I knew I should have paid more attention in that field crop lesson <laughs> and first aid and first aid yeah, yeah. no I mean, you're i mean i but then i i think yeah. Okay. Yes, I did go out. I mean, did, did I go out as often as the as the companies? No, of course I didn't. I mean, there'd probably be something wrong if the CEO was out as often as them. But but then I don't think. Well, I know I wasn't doing anything different to the other um, battalion CEOs or battery CEOs because you know I think we you you know that you can't expect young men and women to go out the gate every day if you don't ever. It just, it just it doesn't work like that um and and your credibility and your ability to lead with any any sense of credibility because out the window at that point so but but that, but but i did it it's the right it was the right thing to do and you know we had on the day i was we did you know, we had a, a battle group operation to the north of musakana to to clear the, a bit of a nuisance taliban unit out of a, a village called cats um and um, you know, we deployed the night before, um, dropped down into the village from the from the rear. Um, so I'd say, actually, the thing I would say, the one thing I've always been quite pleased, we had a bit of a deception plan. And I won't bore you with the details of the deception plan, but the, the deception plan worked. And I remember, <laughs> because we, we heard on the, essentially the icon, the Taliban um, intercept, radio intercept, the sort of Pashtun equivalent of behind us. Um, and I thought it worked. We'd orientated them the wrong way, um, well, the right way for us, but the wrong way for them. Anyway, we got down into the village, cleared cleared the village, and then we were just about to go down into the green zone and clear them out of that, which is what we thought they were. Um, when and I'd got my battle group tacked together around the map to just confirm some details on the ground because the green zone is hideously complicated, difficult terrain, and the fire support from the high ground where we were actually around this map was be provided by the U.S. Marines who were part of our battle group. And we wanted to make really sure that when we were talking about a certain feature on the ground, that was the same feature they were looking at. Because it could have gone horribly wrong otherwise. Anyway, we agreed that. And then we packed up, agreed HR, called the standing patrols back in. And as I stood up to go and get right, walk around behind the Humvees, what, what we discovered was there were, I think, a fourth Taliban had followed one of the standing patrols back in. And, and good luck for them and bad luck for us was that right in front of them, 70 metres away, was Battle Group Tactical Headquarters. So, so not really a com an assault unit, really. We're just lots of people with radios and maps and, and, um, and we were all looking the other way. Um, so the first we knew about it was there was a, an almighty burst of fire, which was, which was their mistake because all four of them fired on automatic from about 70, 70 metres away, which isn't very far, actually. Um, and um, there were rounds everywhere um and and one of them broadly the same time one zipped past my left ear one was slightly further i mean when i say zipped past my left ear i felt it as well as heard it um one was a went over my right right shoulder and i and i felt and heard that one and then momentarily later one went in through the back of my right leg and out through the front. I mean, when I say it all happened very quickly, I hadn't I hadn't actually moved really. I was still in the same pace, but all this stuff happened together. 
So I got, I then sort of hopped about like an idiot for a minute, I think, because my leg was, was evidently broken. It clearly broke my femur because it, my leg was just flapping around. And I was stupidly, while still being contacted, trying to work out how I was, in my slightly um, concerned brain at the time, trying to work out how I was going to fall so that I didn't fall on, my, on what was now my bad leg. And then I thought, um, and all this happened in less than, probably less than a second. I then thought, you're being a complete idiot. Just get down. <laughs> um, so I put a three myself to my left, which was down a, with my head down a slope. Uh, and, of course, battery attack had all orientated them. They'd all turned to where the fire had come from. So at this point, you've got <laughs> you've got battery attack turned around and returning fire. And I'm I'm now effectively behind them. Um, and then Nick Calder, who who a great company commander, really talented guy, who left the army sadly a couple of years later, who got an MC, a military cross during his command in his command in Afghanistan. I think he dawned on him that he was quite quiet. It's a bit unusual. Um, and he turned around. I was only a matter of six feet, eight feet behind him, and and he said to me, "See, so you've been shot." And I I won't give you the full. Um, <laughs> full response I gave him, but it was the gist of it was yes, Nick. I know I've been shot. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, the challenge that I was having was I was I couldn't because I had a radio and I was I was head down on a slope. I couldn't sit up to get hold of my leg properly to do much about it because the I was just you know I, and I couldn't get any purchase because one of my legs was broken essentially, and I was also lying, which was ad adding to my concern. I was lying on my first aid kit, so I couldn't get to that either. Oh. And, I, and I was just beginning to think this is not going well, um, <laughs> and um, and I, I I knew it was it was not I, I, I knew my leg was broken and therefore I wasn't able to move and it wasn't therefore very good. Um, I didn't. I don't think I fully appreciated just how bad it was, and the pain. I have to say, was excruciating. Um, it momentarily, few seconds, it was utterly painless, and it was. And I've sort of likened it a bit to like when you strike a thunder flash and you throw a thunder flash. Mm. You know it's going to go off with a bang. When? But when it does, you still get a fright, um, or a bit of a fright anyway. Well, this was it. I knew this was going to hurt, but by God, when it did, it was hideous. Um, and then once Nick had copped on the fact the CO was down, I then heard weirdly on the radio, of course, my, my signaler, Sam Roddick, then put out those those great words, you know, sunrays down. And that was slightly surreal because, of course, who's sunray? Sunray was me. And it, you think, <laughs> shit, that, that's me. Um, you don't ever really expect to hear that. <laughs> Nor do you want to hear it. Um, <laughs> and, um, and we're still still under fire from 70 metres away. Um and then three people crawled out to me, and it was two, and this has always struck me, there was two, as I later discovered, two 18-year-olds and a 19-year-old, which rather plays to my point about young men and young women, isn't it? Yeah. Um, who crawl out to the CO, not realising particularly as they set off on their short journey that it was a CO at the far end of it. Now, two of those, two of those guys were my own soldiers, and one was the US Marine Corps medic, um, or is a US Marine Corps corpsman, who was actually a US Navy medic. Um, and um, and and they they essentially stuck the finger in the dike, stop 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 the bleeding, which was a pretty bad. Um, <clears throat> had a short conversation about how they were going to move me, and of course, any any sort of serviceman will will will, will recognise that moving a, a, what is effectively a dead weight is not easy. Now, when the dead weight weighs probably about thirteen stone in his birthday suit, and probably weighs closer to seventeen or eighteen stone probably a bit more actually, with all the kit on. Um, and it's bumpy ground and all that kind of stuff. Moving in becomes even harder. So they, having had that brief discussion about how they were going to do it, and I, I had I had discounted a couple of their options for them um, because that was likely to, to result in, in more pain and discomfort than I felt was absolutely necessary. Um, I'm actually surprised you had, a, um, you, you had an option. <laughs> well, I think if truth be told, I probably didn't. What was going to happen? Um, <laughs> They then grabbed hold of my body arm and just dragged me around the corner behind the Humvees, um, which was a deeply unpleasant drag, I have to say, with one leg bouncing about like a oh, like yeah. Daniel's ear actually flapping about. So, um, so that's how that's how I ended up getting taken out. And then I, there was tourniquets applied and morphine given and more morphine given and more tourniquets tightened up and various things going on. 
Um, so when you, were, when you were under the morphine, mm. was it just enough just to dull the pain or was it completely gone and you were no. just counting fairies? No, it was, it, well, it's really hard to say because of course I've never tried it without morphine. So I don't really have anything to compare it to. It was still, it was, it was still hideously painful. I mean, it was that sort of groaning, you know, you just don't quite know what to do with yourself sort of pain. Um, but then I suppose the biggest bone in my, bone in my body had just been shattered, actually, as, as it was what I discovered later was it wasn't broken. It was shattered, which was which was a bit a bit worse. So I take um, it, it just completely destroyed your femur. It just took 10, essentially 10 centimetres out of the middle of it. Yeah. And, and who knows why that happened? It's just that's 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 just the way it came out. Um, I discovered just how painful tourniquets are. Um, they are probably just one notch down to being shot in the first place. Um, I mean, extraordinarily painful, um, but but necessary. Um, it has to and be. Then, and, and I'd had a, um, a splint attached at some point when, in the process. I they'd, they'd attached a, or fashioned a splint over an old tree branch that they'd the bit that baffles me to this day is where the, where the tree was because I can't remember seeing any trees that day, but they found one anyway. Um, and the problem with this was that the was that the splint was too long. It was you know, as my legs were I don't know 30, 32 inches long or something, um, and this was shoved a good distance up my chuff. Actually, that was the other thing which which stuck in my mind. Um, I always thought you walked funny for a while. <laughs> I was walking funny for a while. I think. Um, yeah. the, the splint was about six foot long, I think. And of course, we're still under fire, so the, the jocks are still scuttling about, changing fire positions and carrying ammunition, all the things you do in a firefight. And from time to time, and it seemed to be far too often from time to time, one of them would fall over the end of the splint, which was sticking out beyond the rest of us, which of course put me in a, in, to a degree of discomfort I wouldn't want to repeat. And then five minutes later, I'd repeat it when somebody else fell over it running the other way. Um, anyway, I, I sort of was with less than fully compass mentis after several shots of morphine I, I, and um i remember opening my eyes at one point and bob the dog who was a corporal in the recce platoon bob the dog davison who was the army heavyweight boxing champion um had been asked to keep me awake so he was talking to me <laughs> and telling me the most god-awful jokes I, I can't remember what they were now but i remember thinking oh, this is painfully painfully bad um shoot me again yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no, more likely, Scotty. Somebody shoot him. <laughs> um, but he did that job well. Anyway, I, I, I saw him, um, looked at my feet, and the doctor was had just appeared because there were there's a whole battle group out, so the doctor was deployed as well, and he he had in his in his hand what was unmistakably a bone saw, and in my somewhat befuddled st befuddled state, I remember going through this whole. Oh my God. He's doing it here. Surely not. It's the twenty-first sodding century. <laughs> Got my leg off right now. And of course, you're not. You just think, oh dear, what what is going on here? And he he knelt down, and I I do remember taking a bit of a oh, this is really going to smart a bit. And he what? He, and he saw the end off the splint. <laughs> and, I, and I remember thinking with an enormous sigh of relief, just thinking. Why did you tell me that was what you were going to do? Oh, um, no. <laughs> that would have but, been. Um, and then the I was away up the, the wadi back to an HLS, which had been secured and cleared of IEDs and that kind of stuff. Plonked on a Chinook, which arrived a few minutes later. Um, and uh, the RSM was one of the guys who dropped me off. And I remember him giving me a big thumbs up. Of course, you can't hear a thing over the noise of the Chinook anyway. Um, and I remember thinking at that point was really quite, that was emotionally really difficult because of course, as a CO, you've trained with the guys, you've got them to the, all these things you've built up to this point. And then halfway through your tour, you, the CO gets shot. You're, you're now in the wrong, in your head, you're in the wrong place. What, what, why, you know, you're leaving your battery in contact and all this kind of, all this kind of stuff, which I'm sure, you know, people will appreciate is really quite difficult as you see him turn and run off, ramp goes up, aircraft takes off. And then I got introduced to ketamine. <laughs> I'd never heard of ketamine before. I mean, why, why would I? Oh boy! Um, <laughs> I have to say, Scotty's <laughs> reaction there made me laugh too much. I was never shot, but I've actually taken a couple of shots of ketamine. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's quite a it's quite a unique drug. 
it's quite extraordinary. And it, yeah, that, that really did resolve matters as far as I was concerned. Um, and um, yeah, that, that was it really. That was me away and off to, off to um, Bastion and the hospital there. And then you flew from Bastion back to the UK then. And then um, it, was that kind of, you know, was that the end for you? Did you were you in your mind just like, I, I need to, you know, I need to stop maybe. I need to maybe leave the army or, I mean, I we, we haven't even got into the recovery process as well. I mean, there might, you must have been in a world of emotion, you know. Yeah. It's weird when I, I was a knight in Bastion. Um, they so stabilised my leg, and apparently there was some discussion at the time around um, did it need to come off? Well, thankfully, it didn't. Um, they stabilised it, um, popped me on a flight the following night back to Birmingham, which passes a bit of a daze actually. I'm not entirely mm. certain what I'm there. Um, <clears throat> and um, and at that point, actually, I mean, even once I was back, and you have surgery when you get back, and they start. Yeah, sorting things out, I guess. Um, I was still, I thought, you know, I, firstly, emotionally, I was in the wrong place. You know, I, I, you know, I, I was in in hospital in Birmingham when I should have been in Mr. Carla with the guys. Mm. That, was, that was tough, actually. Um, you've got the whole re, reunited with your family bit, which is emotionally quite very yeah. hard, hard for them, hard for you. Um, and two little children, of course. Um, who, who, when I say little, of course, I was in my early 40s. So my children were older than most, and therefore they got to the point where, although they were still little, they were old enough to realise what had just happened, um, yeah. which, was, which was challenging. Um, and then um, the whole, in terms of leaving the army in the future, I hadn't even crossed my mind I'd need to leave. At that point, I thought it'd all be sorted by Christmas, and I'd be, um, I'd be, I'd be back to being the CEO, which was, of course, wonderfully naive. But, but, um, but I think what even when I got to the end of the sort of four years of reconstructive surgery and stuff as it, as it played out, I was then um, signed off by the consultant. And most of my surgery actually, after the initial five weeks in Birmingham was done in Sheffield. Really. Um, I, I, my, my consultant, who was a civilian consultant in Sheffield said, you what, what struck him was it never crossed my mind that none of this was going to work in terms of the, the rehab and it actually I hadn't I mean, to be honest I, I just had was so single-minded about it and I think you know, when I look back on it now I think that single-minded bloody-minded determination that this is going to work come what may is really helpful up to a point hmm. and the point at which it became unhelpful was I hadn't even considered the option of not being in the army anymore and then I think there comes a point when everybody else realizes that that is actually the thing that's going to happen but you haven't accepted and you're not willing to, to discuss it yet. And then you recognize you have a bit of, I had a bit of a eureka moment when it dawned on me that actually part of the thing which was weighing me down, you know, in terms of the sort of weight we carry ourselves was this bit about trying to do too many things. You know, I was trying to be a, I was still actually, the, the army kept giving me jobs, which wasn't, which was good in some ways, but not internally helpful in lots of others. So I was trying to be a chief of staff in the land warfare center I was trying to be a husband and a father and, and, and I was trying to do my recovery and eventually I had a eureka moment when somebody asked me, <laughs> Headley, how are you today? And I decided I would tell them how I was today. Um, that, that, that was the eureka moment for me. It said, actually, something needs to change here. Um, and um, so I said, you need to get me out of that job because I can't do all of the other things. Um, and the other things are, aren't negotiable. The only, the only thing that is negotiable is whether I'm still trying to be a chief of staff somewhere or not. Um, and then, then part of that was an actually a recognition that things had fundamentally changed, and therefore it was time to think about what was coming next. Um, and it, and to me, all that happened pretty much in the space of a ten-minute conversation. And I could even today take you to the spot I was standing in when I had it. Um, it was a proper eureka moment. Of a, I, I, I get this now, um, but I sort of had to get there and get there myself. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big moment as we uh, we spoke about in the last podcast. Scotty and Rupert, you know, telling them about telling me about their time when they decided, you know, to leave the army, and you know, the the massive shift and the massive change that you know that you're not just leaving a job, you're leaving um, a brotherhood to some extent. Um, um, but I, what I find amazing is you went through all this, 
and you kind of decided, I don't know, I mean, it's very similar to Scotty in the kind of the, you know, both went through traumatic experiences, but both decided, you came out the other end and both decided to kind of, to, to really help others, which I think is just amazing. Um, and then you kind of, so what was your roles after that then, after you went and, and left the military? Um, well, I, I was really lucky. So Brim Parry, who one of the co-founders of Healthy Heroes, um, asked me if I would join them in uh, and become, essentially become their direct first director of recovery and set up their recovery services. And I thought, actually, what a brilliant opportunity. You know, having just been through the whole military part of the system to be able to set up the next bit would be fantastic. So it was an extraordinary privilege to be able to do that for six, nearly seven years. Um, and I worked there with some tremendously talented, capable people um, who were motivated by all the right things. Um, and um, uh, it was fabulous. It was very rare to get an opportunity to take something from a clean bit of paper to, to a functioning um, service and do it so quickly, actually, with so much support. And I think that was the great thing, you know, that, that it was it was such an agile and positive and organization you could you could be making decisions and acting on them so quickly and i hear you know in, and i hear it in lots of organizations i don't mean charities just generally oh well you're the bigger you get the more mature you get the more complicated it becomes and the more you have to have processes and all this kind of stuff and i look back and i think on the basis of that experience and, and others since you know we we had a really quick decision action cycle we got things done really quickly we were we had a very clear vision and purpose which were essential in all of this and did we make any more mistakes doing it quickly than we would have done if we would made it slower and had more process and i'm almost completely certain that no we didn't and i'm now an absolute convert my next question um, I, I think, David, if you were part of um, Invictus, and then mm. it'd be good to mention um, how you and Scotty met as well. I think that's, I think that's quite an interesting, I find it very interesting, you know, you've got, you've got a, a high-ranking colonel. How did you become friends with Scotty is the question I was going to ask. But <laughs> we said I was friends with Scotty. Oh, there we go, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, daddy. daddy. Yeah, I think, I think it was... Was it Invictus we met? No, it was before that, wasn't it? It was, I, I, I kind of got to, um, when I first went to the Warrior Games of the Air Force, yeah. US trials, I, it was, Anna was running the show and bits and bobs, and, and you obviously hear the name David, you know, he's director of recovery, and he was over the sports recovery team, and and this and such, so I, I was aware of David, and, and it was only in passing that I'd probably say hello, or he'd stop and have a chat with you. But it wasn't until we were getting ready the night before we were departing to go to Orlando. And that's the first time really I met David. Funny enough, we were standing in a in, in a, <laughs> an, an airport lounge um, bar having having a couple of quite a, a few um, libations. And um, <laughs> I was I was kind of panicking because as a young uh, ex-corporal I was trying to kick the backside out of things and big Brian was there I can't remember Brian's surname David oh Benfield oh yeah that's him so me and him were standing there having a chat and you remember you were at the other side of the bar and I said to Brian oh I think I'm gonna have to knock it on the head now and he says why is that I said oh the boss man's standing there and he says he'll be the last out of here don't worry about that I was like oh jackpot <laughs> and that's how yeah. then we, I, I joined the conversation David was chatting to another couple and that's really how um, how, how I got uh, to know David yeah. and then it just kind of grew then from Orlando to Toronto and then um, we became friends outside that and then our families know each other and stuff so it's um, uh, it's been great to be honest yeah oh amazing yeah. so um, so, David, how did you get involved with um, Invictus then? Because obviously Scotty was um, an athlete competing. Um, how did you get involved with Invictus? Um, well, I think, so when the first games in 2014 were sort of put on the stocks, um, H Help Heroes was asked to find the UK team. Uh, and uh, we had a sports recovery team which did all the adaptive sports for the wounded, injured and sick so guys. And... Um, and that's where I started with my involvement with the Invictus 
uh, and then that grew into 2016 with the Orlando Games. Um, when there was a UK partnership board partners group formed between us, so I helped the Heroes, Royal British Legion, and the MOD, and then I did 2017 as well in uh, where was that Toronto. So yeah, that was great. Of I mean, I'm a sports fan anyway and participant, and you know, one of the things I do on the side is I chair one of our Paralympic sports national governing bodies. So I've always had a hand in sport in one way or another. Um, and I, I just see the power of sport as being so strong in the sort of in the in the uh, veterans community, wounded injured sick community. So I, you know, I support a big supporter of everything the Invictus stands for. It's not about it's not about winning the medals. It's about getting yourself to the start line and taking part, and the, and the sort of community and camaraderie that builds around that is so important. And of course, Scotty, as you said, you was an absolutely core part of that. Um, and, and that's a sort of probably the, the sort of key vein along which we sort of developed our sort of and got to know each other, developed a friendship. Yeah. Um, but you know, Invictus was a great part of the job and at, at Help for Heroes. And I, you know, I'm, I still support the Invictus Games Foundation now, doing little bits and bobs for them. Um, and I'm you know, a strong advocate for sport as, as a sort of as a means of you know recovering. Yeah. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. And now you are in the um, Office of Veterans Affairs, if I'm not wrong. No, you're not wrong. Um, so, yeah, that's so the Office of Veterans Affairs was founded or was announced in July 2019, created in yeah. October 2019. Um, I became the first director. Uh, yeah. And, um, that's a, what a great, it's a, I think it's a great step forward, you know, focal point in government for the first time ever for veterans. An opportunity to sort of influence policy, government policy, and um, for how veterans are supported going forwards. Really important, I think, to to embrace the the charity sector, the private sector, and the academic world, uh, and actually, I think, bring those things much more together. And I think try and build bridges and strong mm. relationships across that whole ecosystem, not just within pockets of it. But actually, link up across. Yeah. Is so is, I think that's where the real, the real benefits will accrue over time. But no, what a, um, it's a real privilege to be able to do this, um, and um, and to be you know, given that opportunity is something I'm really grateful for. Oh, amazing! Now I'm very aware that I've been asking a lot of the questions throughout this. So if anyone else wants to, Rupert, you know, you know ask away. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the themes um, clearly that Scotty and I have talked about uh, in the past, and and um, David sort of uh, mentioned it as well, is uh, the importance of family and how family's involved. And uh, I've done a bit of work on the side as well on Invictus, um, which is quite uh, an extraordinary um, feat. Uh, but one of the most innovative things I think about it is that they involve the family and that, that's family in the widest sense. Uh, in supporting the athletes and they actually take families to games and so on uh, and in David's current work uh, with the new armed forces covenant and so on family is now very much uh, at the front uh, of that whole debate and uh, I just wonder whether you'd like to talk a bit about family and the importance of that David because clearly it came ahead of the armed forces mm. uh, in the end uh, in your story yeah no I, I I couldn't agree more I think you know when we get so coming to my military career you know, the, the importance of having a stable family a secure family at home was was vital um, I look at the sort of the impact on the family when I was wounded and and you know how so much quite you know rightly in so many ways emphasis is on the on the wounded person but actually you know the stabilizing I describe it as sort of stabilizing effect having a secure and stable family has on on a what is inevitably quite a bumpy recovery journey um, but they need supported too you know they're riding that horrible roller coaster with you and they've all lived in fear and you're away of that sort of that sort of knock at the door yeah um, which which they all um, hate to have, um, but some sadly receive it. Um, and then you know the the role that your families play throughout the whole recovery and and your transition into your whatever your next life and your next career is going to be. So I you know the, the it's family as, as for so many years seemed to be a 
not quite an afterthought, but it, it did feel like that sometimes. And it was something when I was at Health for Humans, I was so keen to ensure that that families were properly brought into our support structures. And you had a band of sisters group specifically formed to support the family members. And, and actually, you know, recognising also that family has changed and you know let's not define it too closely because um you know the the wife and two kids isn't the typical family anymore necessarily and certainly not probably never has been with soldiers actually um so the whole family's peace and that playing into invictus is i mean i'm a, i'm hugely supportive of that the friends and family program for invictus i think is one of the key strands of it do the friends and family step onto the sports field no they don't but, but uh, it's absolutely right that their role in supporting their loved one is, is recognised through um, a programme as part of the Games and more widely than that between the Games too. Absolutely right it is. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty hard life, I think, being married to a service person um, uh, um, or being the partner of a service person. You know, it, you know long, long absences, unexpected and and um changes in programs and postings and constant moves and you know, not notwithstanding the risks to to them when they deploy um it, it makes it all pretty tough um and um and while some would say oh well they they know that before they before they marry that's a pretty unfair way of looking at it i think you know actually it's the it's the service person who joins not the family um but then they they've taken a choice to, to support them and i think giving them ample support and recognizing the sacrifices they make to their lives is is really important in all of it and um and i think you, know, you wouldn't have the armed forces that we do now and a lot of veterans wouldn't be in the position they are now without the supportive families they have around them no, absolutely absolutely i think you you'd go with that scotty wouldn't you oh, i totally agree and it's I, I, we did kind of mention briefly on other podcasts that without that good solid foundation and backing, one with recovery, you can't you can't build a good house with a, a weak foundation. You've mm. got to have that solid foundation, have the family connection there, and then that then you can become stronger and bigger, and you can start to move on for things. And I think that family connection was is totally right, and and. David was very, very modest there when he was chatting about uh, his, his kind of role and stuff. And I, there's two people I kind of I hold in the same sort of um, line. Um, we we chat, I chatted before once about Prince Harry, of how he stuck his neck on the line to say that, you know, mental illness and wounded, injured and sick personnel can um, do sports, can you go and do other employment and he stood beside us and, and and i hold david to the same sort of level as as prince harry because what david has done for the other charities is he saved a hell of a lot of lives um and one of the things he is in the office that he was in there's more people that he's helped than than people don't uh, re realize really so and it was very, very fortunate that I became kind of friends with David um, and his family, Ali and, and the girls. Um, and then it's a friendship we're probably going to keep for forever, which is which is good. But yeah, David um, is, is the same line for me with um, Prince Harry, to be fair. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I agree. I mean, in terms of what you've done, David, I mean, to do your, to do your intro would have taken way longer and seeing as i in the past have messed those up i had to make it as short as possible but um you truly have done an endless um endless stuff towards and obviously now becoming an ambassador to give us time and helping you know not just the bigger military military charities that you know that you know that like the help the heroes um but helping obviously the smaller charities as well because we all have the same goal at the end of the day and that is helping military personnel veterans and their families um and by working together i think is the only way we're uh, we're going to be able to make a big difference is by uh, working together so i mean thank you very much david um for everything that you've done and um thank you very much for being a part of this podcast 
Um, Pleasure, and thank you for your kind words. Scotty, I shall pass you the brown envelope later. <laughs> Just make sure there's money in it this time, Colonel. <laughs> I'm of the I'm of a, I'm Scottish descent. There'll be no money in it. <laughs> yeah. There'll be there'll be a little note that says thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no, we really have been fun doing this, and um, you know, I mean, it it just for me goes without saying. You know, it's part of it's a community I've enjoyed. The armed forces community is something I've really enjoyed being part of. It's something I always wanted to join. You know, from a very very early age, um, and it just seems only natural to be doing something to help people who are who are still there now. So um, no, thank you for your kind words. But I wouldn't. Wouldn't want. Uh, I mean, I, I look back, you know, and I look back at the the, the, the achievements at, that have helped the heroes in the those sort of number of years. And I, I genuinely, and I don't say don't say this lightly at all. I felt you know, in so many ways, I was, and I think I said this the day I left. You know, I felt I was standing on the shoulders of giants in 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 lots of ways. In that we had an extraordinary team, and, and frankly, they did all the work. Um, they just needed to. Helped and pointed in the right direction, and 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 some of the some of the dots joined to help them do it, and some of the obstacles moved out of the way. But you know, while I, I'm um, very proud of what we achieved, I'm I'm also very conscious that it was achieved by a big team. Fantastic. Well, I mean, once again, thank you very much, David. I think you've said some amazing words and actually a really inspirational story for uh, for everyone going and listening. I think everyone can take away something from that. Um, and I just want to say thank you for joining us, David, um, and thank you everyone for listening to episode four of the Give Us Time podcast. So make sure you like and follow Give Us Time. So thank you very much for listening.